Welcome to Fork Pull Merge Push. This is a show about topics developers obsess over with hosts Escolati and guest engineers from around the world. Today, we are going to take a look at some of the fundamentals of the V8 and JVM runtime environments. Like, what does it mean to have only one thread and still be able to implement a high-performing application handling multiple simultaneous connections? Or, what are blocking and non-blocking I.O. and what are the possible advantages of using Node.js instead of JVM? Or does it matter at all? Today, in the studio with me are Otto Paaso and Andy Davies. Otto and Andy are both very experienced developers with background in various programming languages and runtime environments. They have worked on embedded desktop and web applications, as well as infrastructure and build systems, just to name a few. I'm looking forward to getting all the answers regarding runtime environments from you both, so thank you for joining with me to make this episode, Otto and Andy. How are you doing today? Hello Esko, thanks, thanks for inviting me. Um excited about the topic. Let's see what, what we can come up with. Yeah, thanks for inviting me as well. And this should be pretty interesting. Great. To get us started, could you give me a high level overview on what are the different modes of performing operations and how do you do this on Node.js, Otto and Andy? I guess I can start with the uh, simplest way of doing operations, which is sequential. Just one statement after the other, everything in a nice logical order. The downside to that, of course, is that you're in a single-threaded event loop, so what happens if you want to handle these multiple connections? That's when we start having to deal with the parallel operations, like set timeout uh, and process next tick and callbacks. Yeah, that's that's when the continuous passing style comes into play for Node.js. So, um, as already mentioned a couple of times, we don't have multiple threads to kind of run things in parallel. But in a sense, you always do. So Node.js is running in a single thread, but it can leverage uh, multiple threads in the background. So basically it offers an API interface for the application developer to do stuff in a single thread. But then the actual work happens in the background in multiple threads. And then when the results are done, then those get passed back to the main thread that's basically the one that the application developer is working on. So, so when I register a callback for something, the Node.js runtime is taking a reference to that, does something on the thread in the background, and then calls my callback on the next iteration? Yeah, that's that's um, the way it works. So basically, the callback is put into a queue that Node runtime has, and then it's running all the sequential code first, and then when, when it's a lot of sequential code, it checks for the queue if they have returned from the background threads. And then if they have, then Node.js picks up all the callbacks that it has and then passes in the results from the threads and then starts running the code that you wanted to run when, when, say, for example, the I.O. has returned. So when you have, uh, for example, when you have read a file from the file system. And this is, I guess, uh, what non-blocking I.O. is. Yeah, essentially, this is what it is. just running um, the I.O. operations in the background and then passing in the results like a block of memory to the main thread and then just cleaning up after the background thread has done all the work. 
So you mentioned Otto, I think called continuous passing style. Is this like a fancy way of saying that you are having callbacks? Yeah, it is. And I think it originates back to what the 1970s, 1970s or something, yeah. I think. So it's it's nothing new, but it's just like um, applied to the JavaScript environment that was basically invented for browsers. But then I think the JavaScript environment works really well in asynchronous mode because of the continuous passing style. So essentially the developer doesn't have to bother so much with running multiple threads. It's basically only like it's almost as if you're running sequential code, but there is a catch. Basically you get to write in a way that you don't have to so much keep in mind what is running in where, but instead just like you get to write as if it was quite synchronous, but that's not entirely true because then you have all the callbacks or the promises that resolve, and then your code is running still forwards somewhere else, and then the callbacks come into play at, at some point in time. One question I want to cover on this bit is um, the HTTP part. So yep. we've got these asynchronous, like I understand like how the event loop works, but what happens when two HTTP requests come in at the same time? Like uh, to the server? Yeah, so let's say you've got a, you're, you're running an express app, Mm-hmm. Two people hit your application. What is the what? What happens? Do you get two instances of your code running, or um, basically, when you get an event from the I/O, it calls the callback that you have, and you don't get two I/O signals coming back at the same time. So it's one first, and then the other one, and those are processed from a queue. So it it doesn't really run in parallel but instead it runs like sequentially. And and the background job or the event loop takes care of uh, having having all the I.O. events passed to you in, in a sequential way. Right, so you don't have to worry about the the parallel nature of requests coming in. No. Not that, not that two requests ever really come in at exactly the same time anyway. Yeah, if they come at exactly the same time, then those are put into the queue and then they have an order. So effectively, even though they come in at the same time, then one of them will be first and the second one will be second. Yeah, and I suppose the second you do something else in your handling of that request that's asynchronous, that yeah, then you... gets put onto the queue, and then the other HTTP request, say, might be f- further on in the queue, so it would be processed, and then your next piece of I.O. would finish. Yeah, Not really exactly. an easy way to cover that. But. Yeah, but basically, like, say the first request comes in, and then what happens in, in your application is that it goes for, like, does a database search, and that database search will be asynchronous by nature. So at the time when it invokes the database search, the Node.js uh, event loop starts processing the next request. So even though the event loop gave the first callback as the first one to process, it yeah. might be that the second one uh, responds first because uh, it might not have the I.O. And then the first one is still like fetching stuff from the database and the second one is just going for some like in-memory cache and then returning results from there. So basically, yeah. even though you start handling the first request first, you get the response for the second one first. Yeah, so that that explains then to me like how a single-threaded application can actually handle multiple connections. You're not handling your first one and then blocking until it's completely done. Yeah, so it doesn't so, yeah. interrupt or 
yeah, it waits in multiple scenarios. So most of the backend work or, or operations that the backend systems do are about fetching data from the database or fetching data mm. from like third party uh, interface through HTTP or something like that. And in, in the case of Node, uh, all of those are asynchronous. So every time you do some request outside of, of the like main thread that you have running, it's, it's put to the background and then you start processing something else. And is the background stack that is part of the envelope practically? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's basically it's the queue. Yeah. So everything that, that gets put to the queue and then they're processed in the background and then the event loop is all, always running and looking for something to to process and then when those like database searches return then then those are picked up from the queue and the processing continues. So Okay. Guess- so the event loop can might also like get very large at times. It can. If you and- have like lots of IO. Yeah, it can. But is usually, there a maximum size? Yes, there is. And okay, it, so it might actually not... vary depending on the runtime environment you have. Like uh, it's different if you open a Google Chrome or Firefox console uh, than what uh, if you open the REPL, Node REPL from command line. Yeah. Yeah, so what I do know is that like the Node.js stack size is uh, relatively similar in to what it is in Google Chrome, but Firefox seems to have like four or five fold stack length. So quite a lot of more, quite a lot more stack compared to the other ones. You could test it by using something like process.nextTick in a tight loop and just put a ton of stuff into the stack until it exhausts. Yeah, and like the fundamental stack, you can just test by running a recursion without the call optimization. So mm-hmm. just creating new stack frames over and over again until it explodes. Okay, now we seem to go very deep in the conversation. And just to keep myself track of all the things you have mentioned, I would like to back up a bit and ask about the basic functionality of Node.js. And both you, Andy and Otto, I think you mentioned things like set timeout, process next tick. I don't know if set interval was there, but maybe it belongs to the same category. So what are these things? It's something that uh, most JavaScript developers probably at some some point will encounter. Maybe the process next tick seems to be a bit more rare, but uh, like it's there. And what what do you use them for? Yeah, I think um, I personally haven't used process next tick at too many points. I I believe it's a bit lower level API as compared to the set timeout, set interval stuff. So what what do you usually tend to do when when you want to have a timer running in Node.js systems or or JavaScript systems, uh, you use set timeout and then you can you can give a certain timeout in milliseconds and expect the um, runtime system to call your callback after that time has elapsed. So it's practically uh, you put the stuff in the callback, you give to the set timeout into the event query. Yeah, is into the so, event queue, and yeah. then is it to the like bottom to the event queue? Um, Yes, to the bottom, and then um, the event loop is running all the time, and it basically checks if the timeout has already passed, and then it revokes the callback that's waiting to get revoked or invoked when when the time has elapsed. Okay, so that's your lowish level a- API to doing async stuff in Node.js, practically. Yeah, process tick, I guess, is the 
other side of that where you put something at the top of the queue of things that you want to happen. Like, it's essentially set time out with zero as the amount of time. Yeah, I think that there is a distinguishing between the set timeout given zero time and the next tick because if you use both at the same time, you the other callback function goes to the top of the event queue and yeah. the other one seems to go to the bottom. So so the next tick queue should be used when you really need to ensure immediate execution of your code. Yeah, process next tick seems very like uh, fire and forget. I want this thing to happen asynchronously soon, but I don't really care what the result is. It's like as soon as as possible kind of thing. So just like fire off immediately as 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 quickly as you can. But I also think that it in in your usual uh, backend API applications or in in frontends, it's it might be a code smell that you're using process next tick. In most cases, you would use set timeout, and and that that should be enough for then you might have like really complex logic and you might run into timing issues if, if you use process next tick and rely on stuff happening at like precise points in time. Yeah, I think this, this is one of those places where I'd uh, want to put a large comment block around why it's been picked. Yeah. Which is yeah, probably an argument in itself as to should you put comments, but I think in this case, if it's, if it's such a rare occurrence, then having a, a comment as to why process next tick has been picked over the more common APIs is probably a good idea. Agreed. Going to a bit higher level, so there is practically promises in JavaScript that uh, you probably nowadays use, hmm. either with async await and generators or just as as promises uh, to achieve asynchronous computation in JavaScript nowadays. Yeah, that's that's what it's all about because like in the beginning it was mostly about callbacks. But then when you start including callbacks and chaining a lot of them together, you get into callback hell. And that's quite messy if you look at the code. It can be like relatively straightforward what the code is actually doing, but the formatting makes it so that, that you can't, it's really tricky to read what happens where. But with promises and especially async await, it gets quite a bit closer to like reading sequential code because you just read that, okay, this is starting first, and then this one, this one, this one, and the scoping is quite logical if you compare to uh, having a lot of callbacks within mm-hmm. each other. And the uh, the async await part um, reminds me greatly of how C Sharp has their version of this implemented, uh, which I, I, from, obviously C Sharp is a multi-threaded language, uh, so their implementation is entirely different. But the actual syntax is almost identical for JavaScript promises with async await versus C-sharp tasks with async await. Going back to the non-blocking I.O. that we covered a bit earlier, so that's the idea of Node.js if I got it like right, since it only has one thread, so it's pretty obvious that there needs to be non-blocking I.O. in order to like actually do anything without blocking all the other users. So there is surely some reasoning why Node.js is based on a single thread, and why it's only having the uh, you need to use the non-blocking I/O and uh, callbacks. So, what kind of applications do benefit from this kind of uh, runtime, where you need to use non-blocking I/O? Like, imagine me, old-time Java dev- JVM developer, not not anymore, of course, but way back, uh, seeing the Node.js for the first time, and I didn't then understand right away 
what was the point? Because I was used to having like threads being blocked every time I do some integration. For example, send an HTTP request to somewhere. So then this felt at the time very like different, uh, which it of course was. So what was benefit versus having like blocking threads and blocking IO? Andy, do you want to take this or should I go? Uh, all I was going to say on it was something along the lines of highly parallel IO means that you're using less uh, CPU time. You can you can do other things while waiting for your I/O to come back. Yeah, so I I think that's to the point. So you don't like have multiple threads that are doing nothing, but instead you have a couple of threads that are doing actually something useful and chopping their time into like smaller pieces and doing this and doing that and all. And then you have the single thread that's running usually quite small bits of code in between different I/O requests. So an HTTP request comes in and then you do a little bit of like look up some parameters from the request and then you do a search on the database and and you wouldn't want the all of that to block a thread for the whole time when when it's only like the actual thing that you're doing in the thread is very simple that you're just like picking up some parameters and passing them on so yeah. it's if you have a lot of IO then it's more economical to use a single threaded main loop, event loop, and then just use multiple threads in the background for doing the small bits that you have for the I.O. It, it certainly sounds like it's uh, more efficient on this. So if you've got a, a lot of, say, HTTP requests coming in, and you're just, like you said, grabbing some parameters and sending it off to the database, if you had 40 requests come in and most of your time is going to be spent waiting for those database calls to come back, one thread probably makes a lot more sense rather than, I don't know, a, a threaded application model might have the overhead of creating a thread for every request that comes in. Yeah. Which then makes it harder to reason about because you you have memory usage of the thread overheads. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So basically... Every thread that you have requires a handle from the operating system, and and there are only a limited amount of those handles usually usually available. Yeah. So in in JVM environments, you need a lot of threads to have like parallel process ten thousand requests. In Node.js, it's relatively simple because you only have a couple of threads for like database connections, and then you have some for HTTP requests, and then you have a single thread working on the main loop. So it's only it's it's very little the amount of threads that you have compared to JVM or other system, systems that use like multi-threaded models. Does this answer the question? Yeah, I think that I I got the point quite well. Thank you. Thinking about it, C sharps async await and tasks uses a thread pool. So rather than having each task creating a new thread there's a limited number of threads that are processing each one. So at least there's there's some optimization at least. Yeah, I think that is the like common pattern in, in different like uh, database connectors. So you have a client pool mm. and, and then those clients connect to the database and are kind of ready to be used, so like pre-allocated. But then you have like, a bunch of pre-allocated stuff for the database and then you don't need for each request you don't need uh, a separate thread but instead you have uh, separate threads for the database um, 
operations and then you have main thread for the requests and as a comparison uh, esco you've you've mentioned that you you know java so is that uh is Java, I assume, is closer to C-sharp's model of threading than JavaScript's. I have to admit that it has been a while since I last checked the specification, but way back, I think that it was pre-Java 8, uh, you had this thing called Java Util Concurrent Future, which is a thing that gives you like basic rudimentary asynchronous stuff in Java. Uh, practically, you will have blocking, async, and so when you like invoke an HTTP request with your HTTP client, it will be executed on a separate thread and the thread will block and it will continue like when the request is complete and the future allows you to do other stuff uh, meanwhile in your program. And the drawback is that you will end up doing a thing called context switching, which is practically... Uh, when the thread is blocking the thread that like is executing the http request and then uh, your cpu is starting to execute some other thread which is the main thread of your application and uh, the context switching itself is a thing that costs some uh, execution time so if you have hundreds of thousands of requests coming in you are doing lots of context switching which is not very performant and I think that the non-blocking I.O. is really a solution to this one. Uh, and in addition to the context switching, there is the fact that uh, you have different layers of ca- caches in your processor. And, and the closer the caches to your CPU, the like faster the execution time is. And if you are like switching between threads, then you also need to switch the memory contents that you are accessing, since the threads probably do not share uh, memory, because they are probably operating on totally different things. And if you use a lot of context switching, then uh, some of the memory contents you need to access from some threads are not so close to the CPU than, for example, the uh, memory of the main thread. So accessing that memory either is causing you some performance issues. In the later Java 8, I think, uh, introduced this thing called completable future which is an extension to future and if you are a javascript developer and do not know about this stuff i can say that it kind of makes the future behave like promise in sense that you can like chain these futures between each other and uh, have non-blocking io so that makes stuff work faster but to summarize uh, the stuff i learned from you uh, i think that if i were to have this kind of high performing REST API or something like that, which is receiving quite a lot of connections, then I would definitely go with Node.js as the runtime instead of JVM. I, yeah, I'd make the same pick, probably yeah, to me it even sounds, versus C-sharp. To me, it sounds a bit like there's some convergence going on, like Java is picking up things from Node.js and, and we'll see like where will the next five years take the Java as a platform. Um, perhaps they will have more non-blocking I/O options by then, and then it'll be a bit, a bit more difficult to select between the two. Yeah, possibly. Like um, at least in in C sharp, the the async await has been there well uh, longer than JavaScript's has, but it's also beginning to take in more of the functional programming styles of things. So I think a lot of these languages are trying to pick the strong points of their competitors. So it, it, it certainly, I think, will make decisions uh, harder or at least give you more options in the future. It raises the question that will our kids use only one language in one vera- environment? Do all the, like, do 
will we have a unicorn environment that has all of the benefits of the different uh, environments that we now have and the languages? I think that's called TypeScript. Uh, I, I don't believe in silver bullets in general, <laughs> so I, I tend to think that if you have other two kids, uh, then they might even program in the different languages when they grow up or something. Yeah, we will see. But you, as long as they program, it'll be fine. You should be prepared to have this kind of language war at your home when they're teenagers. Yeah. Yes, I will. One, one yeah. will prefer spaces and one will prefer tabs. Yeah, that's a different discussion, <laughs> but we, we can surely have a flame war about that too. But hey, going back to the call stack, I had this problem one day. I'm writing a Java script application on Node.js and I get this maximum call stack size exceeded thing. So is it somehow related to the size of the call stack? Yeah, I think it gives a hint that if you exceed the maximum call stack, then it's it's related directly to that. Uh, basically what it means is that you have too many functions running at a time. And in general, you can have quite a lot of functions. But but then when you start doing things like recursion, it, it might blow up the stack quite easily. Okay, so practically, is it like a recursion that might easily cause me to get that error on my in my runtime? Uh, again, it depends uh, on the kind of recursion that you're doing and on the kind of data that you're processing. Uh, if you don't have much data and the recursion doesn't go too deep, like it only goes like 100 level deep, then most probably we'll never come across the issue. But then if you go like tens of thousands of or deep of, of calls in the recursion, then then most probably we'll see some problems yeah, and with I suppose, stack size. I suppose JavaScript has the problem of uh, not having uh, what they call tail call optimization. So uh, to explain what that is, um, if you've got a recursive function and the compiler or interpreter looks at it, it can see that it doesn't need to make each function an actual separate invocation. It can just maintain in the same function uh, and reuse the one one stack frame for the next call. So that makes your call stack uh, less likely to explode because you obviously don't need to push more stack frames on every time you call another function. But as JavaScript doesn't have that, how can you get around that if you need deep recursion? I think that there is at least this functional programming trickery called trampolining. Or actually, I think that trampolining is more general term in programming, since it depends on the context. It has different meanings. But you could at least use trampolining in plain JavaScript to prevent adding stuff to the call stack. But it might be if you're using TypeScript, you can also do trampolining, but it's a bit more involved. But then that's one technique you can use to avoid get, getting too large call stack. And especially like if you have that 30,000 character string that you need to process character by character somehow, and you decide to do it with recursion, then you're probably going to not, not be able to do it without trampolining in JavaScript. Yeah, and I, I think there is a important like difference if if you have a 30,000 long string in your memory and then you go want to go through it character by character we know that using a for loop is easy just like loop and index the string and get the single character out at a time so then like each invocation then has 
a stack frame, but when it's all done, then the stack frame can be dropped out and then you create a new one for the second invocation, like meaning the loop iterations. But when you do recursion, then you can do the same stuff if you don't have any dependencies after um, after returning from the recursive function. So you don't have like dependency outside of the scope of the recursive function to another stack frame. I don't know if you... Uh, yeah, I think that I got there. I can once again try to elaborate what, on what you said. So if I have a basic recursion that I just invoke the function itself from the function, say 30,000 times, it's it's not going to work directly out of the box in Node.js or maybe on some other JavaScript environments too. Maybe on browser console it might work. But then when I first time invoke the function, then the function invocation is going to put to the stack or to the queue. And then inside the function, I'm going to just invoke itself again. So the old first invocation will remain on the stack. And on top of that, somewhere is going to be placed the second invocation of the function into the query. And only after I have invoked all the 30,000 times or whatever is the amount, the function, and then I have like, for example, say pile up the 30,000 invocations to the query of the function. And then when it's the last time and I'm not anymore invoking the function, then is the moment when all the 30,000 frames are removed from the stack. So I think that they pile up there uh, until you don't have the references, just as you said. Mm. And then you end up doing for loops or other stuff like that instead of like fancy functional programming. Yeah, because of course any recursive function you can rewrite to be a loop. Okay, so Otto and Andy, we have been talking quite a lot about uh, the internals of Node.js and what happens when you try to do asynchronous programming with JavaScript. Why is this so important? Why should developers really care? Because you can just go and write the code and uh, like ignore all this stuff. So why is this important in, in your opinion? I, I think it's uh, good to know how your tools actually work um, because at some point you'll have some error usually in production and if you're aware of how things like these promises and uh, like process next tick and all these other kind of things work in the background that will probably help you figure out what your weird error is like when you had the the recursion exploding your call stack by knowing how these things work i think it, it, it aids your ability to support your own code yeah, exactly that. I, and then also you need some. Sometimes you need to make decisions on which technologies to use and and what and where. And then it it comes down to need that you need to know how these things work in order to be able to make that selection for the technology. It might have a lot of variables outside of technical scope, like say the people around you. Do you want to code Java or Closure or JavaScript? perhaps, but basically if you select only based on the technical uh, technical stuff, then, then you'll need to know what are the criteria for different systems. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so this has been a super interesting episode to make, and uh, we can only hope that you enjoyed listening to it too. If you did like this episode, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. It really supports our work here. Until next time, have a good one. Thank <music> you.